Hello and welcome to this Highway Community Podcast. It's good to be with you wherever you are. We are in a sermon series entitled Stories of Transformation, in which Highway staff have shared their own personal stories, but during this time, we're also looking at a few stories that Jesus told. Jesus was a master teller of tales, many of them short, creative, fictional stories that we've come to call parables. We tend to read parables like an Aesop's fable, but Jesus didn't tell these tales just to make a moral point. He told them as a way to introduce the kingdom of God. The Jews of his day thought they knew how that worked, and being given direct facts to the contrary probably wouldn't have changed their minds. Instead, Jesus tells them stories, confusing, shocking, puzzling, but ultimately memorable tales that invite them to stop, to reconsider their way of viewing reality, and ultimately to change, to transform. Today we're going to look at the parable of the Good Samaritan, and the question I want to ask is this. How is this story more than just a moral tale? How is it fundamentally challenging the worldview of its listeners? First, we'll listen to the story with an eye towards its context and audience. Secondly, we'll examine how it challenges our way of thinking and invites transformation. And lastly, we'll outline three steps for change. First, let's listen to this parable found in Luke chapter 10. This story is told in the context of a conversation which begins in Luke 10:25. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, "Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life?" Now, this lawyer is not an expert in civil or criminal law as we think of lawyers today. He's an expert in the law of the Old Testament and all the rules and regulations the Jews added onto it. He's more what we would call today a theologian, and he's asking this to test Jesus. Jesus meets him in his area of expertise by replying, what is written in the law? How do you read it? The lawyer then gives the correct textbook answer. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, and your neighbor as yourself. He didn't think this up on the spot. This was an established answer at the time. Jesus replies, do this and you will live. Now, is Jesus saying we can earn eternal life? We'll get to that later on, but it's enough to note for now that Jesus is probably not being completely literal in tone here. What he's saying is, yeah, do this and live, but perhaps you can't. We know he speaks with this tone because the lawyer feels put out enough to make a defensive comeback. Verse 29, but he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? It's crucial to understand the motivation behind this question. He's not asking, who is my neighbor so I can go love on people? But who do I need to love so I can do just enough to check off the box and meet the rules? In fact, he's kind of asking, who do I not need to waste my time loving? Now, the dialogue in this passage occurs in two blocks, which have the same repeating pattern. The lawyer asks Jesus a question. Jesus replies with a question. The lawyer answers Jesus' question. And finally, Jesus answers the lawyer's question. So we'll see here that Jesus will again reply to the lawyer's question, who is my neighbor, with a question of his own. But the question he replies with is going to be a reversal of the lawyer's original question. To set this up, he first tells a story. In verse 30, Jesus begins, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. 
Now, if you were a first century Jew, you would immediately be feeling some suspense. While this story is fictional, its setting is not. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho is a winding downhill path dropping 3,600 feet over 17 miles. It was bordered by rocks and crevices where attackers could hide and was so dangerous it became known as the Bloody Way. The terrain got drier and drier as you went along. If you were attacked, you were completely exposed, without water or food or shade. And indeed, in our story, this man, who we can assume is a Jewish traveler, is attacked. Verse 30, he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. At this point, as a first century Jew, you'd be like, yes. The functional Jewish definition of a neighbor at that time was a brother, a fellow Jew. And this guy was not only a Jew, he was a priest in the temple. It was his job to give alms to the poor. He would have known that Leviticus teaches us to care for strangers in need, that Exodus 23 talks about how even if your enemy has a donkey stuck in a ditch, you should help out the donkey, more so the neighbor if he's stuck. But no, he sees the guy, but goes to the other side of the road. Well, that's surprising. Maybe he didn't want to become unclean, which he would have by Levitical law if he had touched this man, perhaps even having to go back to Jerusalem to purify himself for some time. Maybe he was worried the attackers were still nearby and didn't want to put himself in danger. Whatever the reason, he passes on. Jesus continues, So likewise a Levite. A Levite was basically a priest's assistant. The priest was responsible for the primary sacrificial duties in the temple, but the Levite would be working alongside him, helping him to maintain the temple. He would have known everything a priest knows, but he too passes by. By now, the tension is building. And Jesus builds it further when he says in verse 33, But, but what? But the guy breathes his last and dies? But a Pharisee comes along? but a Samaritan. This would have been like dropping a bomb in the middle of the story. If you were a first century Jew, your blood would immediately begin to boil. We all know Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other, but the depth of that is hard to understand. Suffice it to say that in every intersectionality of identity that would have been important to people of that time, genetic lineage, land rights, temples, political alliances, worship practices, the Jews and the Samaritans were actively and destructively at odds. Later on, the lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He's like the one who showed him mercy. Yeah, the third guy. The Samaritan's heritage would have taught him not just to walk around the guy, but to step on him. But the Samaritan is the one who helps, taking clothes off his own back, using medicinal wine and oil, carrying him on his own animal, fitting the bill at the inn, which essentially saved the man from slavery. If the man had been unable to pay, the innkeeper would have made him a slave until he worked off his debt. The Samaritan leaves a blank check for the man's future and promises to return, and there the story ends. Now, how does the way in which Jesus tells this story challenge the lawyer's way of thinking? 
Remember, the text tells us that the lawyer wants to justify himself. All through this encounter, he's been focused on himself and what he needs to do. He doesn't just ask, how does one get eternal life? But what do I need to do to get eternal life? He wants to know who classifies as a neighbor so he can meet a standard and do enough to measure up. But Jesus challenges that by doing something that has been called the great reversal. Think about it. If Jesus had told the story in a way that directly lined up with the lawyer's way of thinking, it would have been totally different. First of all, the variables would have been different. It would have been one guy coming along and finding three injured people on the road, and the question would have been, which of these three injured people meet the definition of neighbor? And the Jew with whom the lawyer can identify would have been the one walking down the road, and the Samaritan would have been one of those lying injured on it. The Jew helps the Samaritan, and there's your answer. Even your worst enemy is your neighbor. That's how it would have been told as a simple moral tale. But Jesus reverses the variables in the story, and he reverses the expected roles of the characters. He has one guy injured on the road and three guys coming along to potentially help him. He's saying the point is not who is my neighbor, but who is the neighbor to this man? That's the question Jesus replies with, and it's a complete reversal of the lawyer's original question. The word neighbor has shifted from being the object of the action to being the source of the action, from who is my neighbor to who is the neighbor to this man. He's saying, your problem is not with finding the right object to help, the right someone to do something for. Your problem begins with the source, with yourself. The question is not, who is my neighbor, but how do I become a neighbor? And look at where Jesus puts the Jew in the story. He puts the Jew, with whom the lawyer can identify, dying on the road. And it is the hated Samaritan who comes along and helps. He's saying, you really want to know who your neighbor is? Then put yourself in the injured man's place. Who would you want to help you? Wouldn't you want anyone to help you? Then isn't everyone your neighbor, even a Samaritan? That's what it means not to love your neighbor for yourself, but to love your neighbor as yourself. See, Jesus is taking the test the lawyer is giving him and doing something brilliant. The lawyer instigated this whole conversation because he knew Jesus was hanging out with, quote, sinners, and he wanted to catch Jesus devaluing the law in some way. But what Jesus does here instead is hold up the law more highly, more perfectly in its true spirit than even the lawyer himself could have. By holding the law up in all its perfect glory, Jesus is also showing that it is something no one can reach on their own. Some of us have heard this story so many times that we forget that Jesus didn't have to put a Samaritan at the climax of it. He risked alienating his whole audience. But by doing so, Jesus reveals the deep-seated, instinctive hatred that would have been brought out in his listeners. He is exposing a lack of mercy and love at the core of this lawyer's heart that needs to be radically transformed. He's showing the lawyer that the lawyer is as much of a sinner as the, quote, sinners Jesus was hanging out with. The story reverses the lawyer's question in a way that blasts the lawyer's paradigm out of the water.
The law calls you to so much more than just a list of rules, and it is not a thing within your power to achieve. Therefore, what you need is not a clarification of the rules, followed by working harder to achieve them. What you need is a new heart. What you need is transformation. And the amazing thing is that hidden in this story is a picture of the path to having a transformed heart. Let's look at three steps for change we see here. Now, broadly speaking, there are three kinds of people in this story, and they represent three points along the journey of transformation. They are the priest and Levite, the man on the road, and the Samaritan. The problem with reading this story as a moral tale is that we jump straight from the priest or Levite to the Samaritan. We say, don't be like the priest or Levite, be like the Samaritan. If that's all we do, we're just exchanging one form of self-justification for another. We're not actually being changed. The first step to transformation is not the movement from priest or Levite to Samaritan. It is the movement from priest or Levite to being the man dying on the road. The first step is recognizing our own spiritual poverty. The truth is we're all a lot more like the lawyer than we'd like to admit. We live in a culture of meritocracy that says we have what we have because we've achieved it. And if we don't have what we want, then we need to do more. We have to act or look or have or produce a certain way to have worth and happiness. We need to justify ourselves. And so, like the lawyer, we want rules. We want methodology that will produce measurable outcomes, preferably on our time scale. We want God on our own terms. We want Jesus to give us some kind of matrix by which we can earn success. But Jesus is saying, you want to know whether you're succeeding? What do you do when you're confronted unexpectedly with someone else's needs? What do you do when your child interrupts you or has a spell or a meltdown? When you pass someone living on the street? When a patient or client or colleague needs more than you are prepared to give? Like the priest or Levite, you can look like you're doing all the right things. You can be busy and productive on your way somewhere. You can have all the head knowledge. But if you are not moved with compassion when no one else is watching, when it costs you something, then you have not succeeded in what matters. In the moments that we're aware of our failure, that's a hard place to be. But it's actually a really good place because it's the beginning of understanding what the kingdom of God is all about. The very first beatitude Jesus says in Matthew 5 is, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Spiritual poverty is a kind of emptying, a rooting out of self-reliance, an utter consciousness that we are nothing in the presence of God. It's nothing we can produce. It's an awareness that we have as we come more and more face-to-face with God. Remember the lawyer's very first question, what do I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, the answer is not do more. The answer is realize you can do nothing. Realize you are like the man dying on the road. The second step is to receive the compassion of Jesus. After the emptying, there's a filling, a receiving, the way the man on the road receives the Samaritan's help. You know, in this entire story, there's only one place where we're told what the Samaritan feels. Verse 33, when he saw him, he had compassion. 
The Greek word for compassion, splanchnizo, literally means to be moved as to one's bowels, which kind of sounds like it should mean bowel movement, but that's not entirely it. It's an ancient way of referring to what rises up from one's innermost core. It's more than passing pity. It refers to something that's got to come out, a yearning so deep that it's got to move you. Seeing is not enough. The Levite and the priest both saw the man lying on the road. It was the Samaritan who moved towards him. This word, splachnizo compassion, is actually the word most frequently used in the four Gospels to describe the emotional life of Jesus. When Jesus heals the sick, feeds the hungry, teaches the crowds, wipes away tears, we're told that he was moved with compassion. Dane Ortland talks about this in his book, Gentle and Lowly. He writes, This is deeper than saying Jesus is loving or merciful or gracious. The cumulative testimony of the four Gospels is that when Jesus Christ sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct, is to move toward that sin and suffering, not away from it. We tend to see God as viewing our sin and suffering rather begrudgingly, kind of the way we take out the trash. He pinches his nose and forgives us because he has to. But that is so far from the truth. That's why we need the Bible, because our natural intuition can only give us a God like ourselves. Jesus is not like us. He's not like other people in our lives. He longs for us. He sees you, not the Facebook you, not the you that you project to others, not the you that you wish you were, the real you. Like the man robbed, stripped, and alone on the road, he sees you without the possessions, clothing, or people that you use to distract or define or shield yourself. Like the man lying wounded, he sees your hurts and insecurities. And like the Samaritan, he moves towards us, not because he has to, but because it's the deepest yearning of his heart. In fact, this is what moves Jesus to the cross, and I think Luke intends for us to see that in this story. Like the injured man, Ephesians 2 says we were, quote, dead in our sins. Like the Samaritan, God did not owe us any help, but had every justification to trample us. Romans 5.10 says we were, quote, enemies of God. But like the Samaritan, Jesus rescued us, not merely at the risk of his life, but at the cost of his life. He passed through the bloody way. He himself became stripped and beaten and left exposed, not on some road, but on the cross in our place. Like the Samaritan, he saves us from death, he binds our wounds, he pours out the oil of his spirit on us, he pays for our freedom, he gives us what we need for the future, and he promises to return one day. And this is not just all in the past. Even now, this very day, he is interceding for us in the heavenly realms. Hebrew says Jesus lives to make intercession for us. He is always moving towards us with compassion. Have you received and experienced the compassion of Jesus for you? If you have, it should change you in a way that has visible results. That's the third step of transformation, being compelled by Christ's love to move out with compassion for others. After the emptying and the filling, there is a moving. If Jesus had told the story the way the lawyer asked the question, if he had made the Jew the one who offered help to his worst enemy, would that story have changed the lawyer? Probably not. But if you are the one who receives help from your worst enemy when you really needed it and didn't deserve it, 
well, then that changes you completely. As transformed people, we should be living out transformative acts of mercy to others. Jesus' last words here are, go and do likewise. You know, we hear about all kinds of social justice today, especially here where we live, and that's not a bad thing. But there's a difference. There should be a difference between secular acts of mercy and gospel acts of mercy. There should be a difference between secular neighboring and gospel neighboring, a difference in motivation and power and in scope. Gospel mercy is motivated by an overflow of Christ's compassion. Its power comes from God himself, from the Holy Spirit. Its scope is not only to meet an earthly need, but to point to Jesus, the only one who can save us in the eternity for which every one of our souls is destined. If we care for those in need because of guilt or on our own strength and good intentions, it will only go so far and it will wear us out. But if we do so as people transformed by Christ, then it should look different in motivation, in power, and in scope. And you know, this story isn't talking about some extravagant need we have to search out. It's talking about the needs of those right in our daily, day-to-day path. You don't have to worry about finding it. You'll see it. The question is, how will you respond? How will you respond when it interrupts your plans? When it involves someone you don't particularly like or can't identify with? When no one else will know what you do? How will you respond when it puts yourself or your family at risk? When it costs you resources, and we're not just talking about money, but also the currency of our attention and our time. Our answers to these questions are a litmus test of how much we understand our own spiritual poverty and how much we have experienced the true compassion of Jesus. Where are you in this process of transformation? Are you the priest and Levite? Are you the man lying on the road? Or are you the Samaritan? Do you need to be emptied or filled or moved? These aren't necessarily separate or sequential steps. I can think of days when I go through all three. But no matter where I am, the solution is always the same. Look to Jesus, the great Samaritan. The more I look at him, the more I see my spiritual poverty and his compassion. The more I have power to move out into the world with that compassion. God, as we continue to think on this story, may you do your transformative work of mercy in us today. Amen. Amen.